you're listening to the RUF at UT podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. My wife was working as a nurse, and uh, she worked later than me most days. And so this one day, I got home from work, and I was so excited for her to get home. It was like a Friday night. I was pumped. I had all these plans for our weekend. I'm psyched. Can't wait. She gets home about 7 o'clock, and she walks in. And you know that, like, that thing that you do when you're in a relationship with somebody, and there's a lot of tension, and it's not being acknowledged, and, like, you're not making eye contact with them at all, and you're moving around really quickly doing a billion different things and giving short little answers? That's what Jess walked in doing. And I was extremely confused. I immediately know that something is off. She's moving around our house a billion miles an hour, throwing stuff around, cleaning stuff everywhere. I'm like, okay, something is wrong. So I'm talking to her. I'm like, Jess, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Which doesn't help. You can't just keep pestering with that question. But I'm asking her, and finally she's like, okay, listen, Mac, I don't feel loved by you. And I was like, what in the world? Are you serious? I tell you, I love you all the time. I give you hugs all the time. I text you and I tell you I love you and I tell you I'm thinking about you. I'm a hopeless romantic and I'm just doing those things all the time. And you say you don't feel loved by me? And her eyes, she looks over at our kitchen sink, (laughs) which still has all of my breakfast dishes and a week and a half's worth of coffee mugs piled up from my car put in the sink. And she looks over that at that and she says, Mac, I just don't think that you think about me. And so I don't feel loved. So I thought I was expressing my love for Jess quite well, but I was not expressing it in the ways that she could receive love. I was missing her. I had an idea of how to make, how I thought she would feel loved, how to communicate my love. But the reality was it just wasn't her love language. She would feel way more loved by me thinking about her and doing the dishes to show her I love her, and also that she married a functioning adult. (laughs) More so than my showering her with hugs and words of affirmation. And this is what we do for the people that we love, right? You have this love for them, and you're looking for and trying to learn from them the ways that you can best express that love. How can I communicate this love for them? So you've got the five love languages. You've got quality time and acts of service and physical touch and words of affirmation and gifts, just cold, hard cash. Languages of love, ways of expressing this internal commitment and this desire that you have for another person, figuring out how can I translate this to them so they can feel it. And we don't get to determine the way that somebody receives that love. We have to learn from them. We have to learn how they receive love. I had to learn that Jess on Saturdays in the fall will feel significantly more loved if I plan a brunch date where we walk through a farmer's market. Yes, we are basic millennials. (laughs) She will feel way more loved by that than sitting on our couch and watching college game day, which I'm like, hey, shared experience. I'm here for it. (laughs) Jess receives love when I write her thoughtful notes and letters. When I clean the dishes out of the sink in the morning, these are not things that I've come up with. These are things that I've learned from her. These are the ways that she receives my love. Now, what in the world does any of that have to do with the Ten Commandments? What I want you to think about tonight 
is that the Ten Commandments are given to teach you how to love God. They are a love language given to teach us how to love and respond to a God who stands outside of space and time, a being so powerful, so vast, so beyond your comprehension that you have to learn how it is to respond to him. He has to tell you how best to love him. And that's what these Ten Commandments, these Ten Words do. They teach us to respond to and love God. There's this great movie with Amy Adams called Arrival. Uh, And what happens in this movie, I'm not, well, I might spoil it a little bit. So if you really don't want to know, just plug your ears. Here's what happens in Arrival. All these alien ships arrive on the earth. And everyone's trying to figure out how do we communicate with the aliens. And each country sends out a delegation to meet with the aliens. And each country goes to these conversations with all of these assumptions and preconceptions about what the aliens are there for. And their assumptions about what the aliens are there for, it totally changes the way that they interpret the aliens' communication. So everything starts to fall apart when one of the countries thinks that the aliens have given them a word that says weapon. And so everybody starts freaking out and they think the aliens are here to attack us. But Amy Adams, she finds out, my goodness, they're actually just telling us the word for tool, and they're trying to save us, and it's beautiful, and it's awesome. When it comes to the Ten Commandments, everybody in this room is coming to the table with all sorts of different assumptions. And those assumptions are, are, are really shaping what you think the Ten Commandments are actually all about. Some of you, you think of them as just Christian rules to obey, some sort of standard that you have to measure up to. Some of you think that they are the marks of the people who are in and the people who are out with God. Some of you maybe picture them as some sort of stairway to heaven. If I can just do these things or enough of these things, then God has to love me and I will get heaven. Maybe some of you attach the Ten Commandments to the political right and their movements of always trying to make sure that the Ten Commandments stay in schools and stay in courtrooms. And so you're very suspicious of the Ten Commandments and you're suspicious of the things that go along with them. Maybe you view them as a restrictive set of guidelines. They're to squash your fun and your freedom. Maybe if you've been around the church for a long time, you've heard that Jesus came and he fulfilled the law. And so you don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments. You don't have to obey them. Maybe they're just suggestions for how to live a good life. Like a buffet that you can just go through and pick the things that you want, skip the meat and veggies, head straight for the soft serve at Rocky Top kind of thing. Maybe that's how you picture the Ten Commandments. We come to the table, we come to the Ten Commandments, like these countries in arrival. Our assumptions about them shape the way in which we receive them. But this semester we're looking at these ten words from God. And my suggestion to you is this. They are given to teach you how to love a God who loves you first. They are given to teach you how to love and enjoy your God. They are given to teach you how to love and enjoy your neighbor. And when these two things come together... As G.K. Chesterton said, good things will run wild. That's his description of the Ten Commandments. I love that. Good things running wild. So to introduce them, I want to look at the summary of the Ten Commandments that Jesus gives in our text that's on the screen from Mark 12. And what we see is that Jesus summarizes them as a language of love. They're how we learn to love and express that love for God. So two short points on that. The foundation of love and the application of love. First, foundation of love. Look at how Jesus responds to the question. So Jesus gets approached by the scribe, and a scribe would be somebody who's a legal expert. These guys, they fulfilled the role of judge, 
jury and lawyer of the day. They were professionals in the law. And they come to Jesus and they say, Jesus, listen, what's the most important law in all of Israel? And Jesus replies, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So Jesus responds by quoting this thing called the Shema. And what this is, is something taken from Deuteronomy 6 in the Old Testament. And it's this quotation that Jews of that day and Jews still today will recite every morning and every evening. It's very, very, very important to them. And this text, this Shema, it tells Israel two very important things. The Lord is God and the Lord is one. First, the Lord is God. This is a great foundational truth. It doesn't sound revolutionary to us, but it was revolutionary in Jesus' day. He was making the claim that there weren't many gods, There wasn't a whole bunch of gods out there. There was one God. There was only one true God. This was groundbreaking in his day. There was only one true God. And if this is true, then by implication, everybody has to take that God into account. If that God is real and there's only one of him, then anything that he says, any directives that he gives are binding on everyone. If he has directions or commands, they apply to everyone that he's created. Maybe you're here and this sounds ridiculous. I'm so glad that you are here. I would love to talk to you about why this claim holds a little bit more weight than you think. The claim that there is actually one God. That there's not no gods, but there is one God. I'd love to talk to you about that. Because I think that there's a lot more to that question than you think. But, back to Jesus. He claims that there's one God. And that everyone has to take into account his directions and his commands. And what is that God's command? that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Makes me think of Jack Black in School of Rock where he's like, listen, it's going to take your head and your mind and your brain. What he's saying is it's going to take everything that you have. It's going to take the whole of you in dedication towards this one thing. The greatest command, according to Jesus, is not obey, it is not submit, it's not believe in. The greatest command is love. Why? This command to love God is born out of how the Bible understands human beings. See, the Bible views us not as brains on sticks. The Bible views us not as meat computers or highly evolved animals. The Bible views us as human beings fundamentally as lovers. We are people who love, creatures who love. Now, love's got all sorts of baggage attached to it. So maybe a different word that we could substitute is worship. You were made to worship. We love, we worship, we find things that we direct our whole lives and our beings towards, things that we center ourselves around. It's love, it's worship. Something that we think will complete us and make us whole. And if you doubt that that's the case, listen to my girl Taylor Swift. Is this the end of all the endings? My broken bones are mending. With all these nights we're spending up on the roof with a schoolgirl crush drinking beer out of plastic cups. Say you fancy me, not fancy stuff. Baby, all at once, this is enough. Listen to this. And all at once, you are the one I've been waiting for. King of my heart, body and soul. Ooh, whoa. And all at once, you are the one I have been waiting for. Yes, that's the language of love, but that's also the language of worship. Directing your whole being around someone else. Animals don't do that. 
People do this. People worship. People love. And you are worshiping something or someone. Maybe it's a combination of things in your life that consume your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. It dominates your daydreams and your longings. And you're willing to direct all of your energy towards these things. These are the things that you love. And you are living into your created purpose. You were made to do this. But because of the fall, sin enters the world. And our longings and our loves have become disordered. We now love and long for the wrong things. And it is destroying us. And so Jesus' first commandment is very simple. God wants our worship back. God wants our love back back. And Jesus bids us to return to our one true love, to love the one true God ultimately and completely. Well, Jesus, can I not love other things? What about my boyfriend or my girlfriend or my golden retriever Jackson or the Tennessee Volunteers, the Orange Bowl winning Tennessee Volunteers? Yeah. What about my family or my school or my hobbies? God, what about these things? Are you some sort of obsessive and weird controlling lover that says you can love nothing else but me. No, but you must love your God ultimately. And when your God is loved ultimately, you will love all other things rightly. And so this is the greatest commandment because when this is obeyed, all else is obeyed as well. Now for the Jews listening, this was nothing revolutionary. They confess this every morning and every night. Great, Jesus, we get it. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Thank you. Good answer. You passed the test. Peace out, Jesus but he doesn't stop. He keeps going. And here's where it gets interesting. This command to love God is the foundation of love that gives way to love's application. Let's look there now. The application of love. Jesus responds like this. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Does this sound familiar? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's the golden rule. This is something that every culture, every religion, every people in the world holds up and says, this is the ethic that society needs to follow. 20 years before Jesus, the... It's fine. 20 years before Jesus, a great Jewish law teacher summarized the entire Old Testament law by saying, listen, what you would not want done to you, do not to others. Seneca, a great Roman philosopher of the time, said this, treat your inferiors as you would treat your superiors the golden rule. 30 years ago, the world, the parliament of world religions said that the golden rule is the standard ethic of all cultures. It's the standard command that all people, every religion, every worldview, all over the place throughout time, even non-religious cultures, holds up, agrees it is true, and should be followed. The golden rule. I learned it first day of first grade when a young boy named Peter was standing at the top of the playground and yelled out, kill all the preschoolers. My little sister was a preschooler. My little sister was a preschooler. So Peter got a quick fist to the stomach. I went to the principal's office and the principal explained to me, Mac, how would you like it if someone punched you in the stomach? She didn't listen to my explanation. I think she would have gotten it. But it was a lesson on the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule. We all get this. We all know this. We've all been taught this. Treat others as you want to be treated. But here's what Jesus has so marvelously done. He's taken Israel's greatest religious commandment and the world's greatest social ethic, and he has married them together. 
He has bound them inseparably. He has peanut buttered and jellied that thing all together. They are met and they are united and they are perfect together. Israel's greatest, social, Israel's greatest religious commandment, the world's greatest social ethic, bound together. There is nothing extraordinary about either one on its own. But Jesus is the first person in the history of the world to bind these two together. And they need each other. They become what the other so desperately needs. You see, the commandment to love God is begging for application. What in the world does it mean to love God? How do you express love for God? Is it feelings that you have? Is it words that you say? Is it practices that you do? How do you love your God? And Jesus says, practically, here is how you will express love for God. You will love your neighbor. You want to love God? Awesome. Love your neighbor. That is how you will express love for God. And the golden rule is begging for foundation. Every culture, every religion says, love your neighbor as yourself. But before we do this, we have to answer the question, why? Why should I love my neighbor as myself? The secular, irreligious answer to this says, well, listen, it's good for society. It's altruism. It's what makes the world function. You've got to do this. But secularism, a life with no God, also says that this is all that there is for humanity, and humanity's ultimate quest is to continue the species. Which you boil that down, you boil that down, and here's what it means. You've got to look out for yourself. You've got to go after your own desires first. It makes no sense to put others in front of yourself. There is no foundation and higher reason to love any other human higher than yourself. And when it's pressed as to why one should love their neighbor if there is no God— The fact that there is no foundation makes this ethic crumble and eventually you become the center. The ethic of love your neighbor as yourself leads to use your neighbor to love yourself. Just look at the recent movie, Bones and All. I couldn't watch it. I got like 30 seconds in, couldn't handle that thing. But I watched the trailer and then I read a ton of reviews because I was fascinated, fascinated. And do you know what the ultimate message of that movie is? Be true to yourself and to your own desires, even to the expense of everyone else, even to the point of cannibalizing people around you. That's the world's ethic boiled down, if love has no foundation. But on the other hand, if you turn to the other religions of the world and you say, great, they say, love your neighbor as yourself. They say that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself because it leads to some reward. You get nirvana. You get eternal life. You get oneness. You get inner peace. Love your neighbor because you get a reward. Well, guess what? You've just done the same selfish thing. You're loving other people in order to get something back from them. And so love of other becomes an exploitive exercise in self-love. It is not about loving others. The golden rule, love your neighbor as yourself, it is begging for foundation. But Jesus gives it its its sure foundation. He says, why love your neighbor as yourself? Because you love your God and he has told you to love your neighbor. That is how he wants to be loved. Jesus has just given the application of love for God. You express that love by loving your neighbor and he's given the foundation for the golden rule for love of neighbor. You love your neighbor because you love your God and that is how he has said he wants to be loved. And that is what the 10 commandments train us in how to do. The Ten Commandments train us in how to love God and how to love your neighbor. Okay, great. That's awesome. 
you've got a summary of the Ten Commandments. That's what we're going through this semester. We're going to break that down. And you're going to see how those things are not restrictive rules to bind your life, but are instead a, path, are instead a pathway to love for God and love for neighbor that will let good things run wild in your life. But maybe you are left sitting with the question of why in the world would I want to listen to that? Why in the world would I want to follow the Ten Commandments? I get that Jesus has just given this great ethic, but why should I want to obey that? Why should I want to love God? Why should I want to love neighbor? Or you see Christ's great commandment here, and you think that it is beautiful and it's awesome and like, go Jesus, I wish I could follow that, but Jesus, you ain't seen my text messages lately. Jesus, you haven't seen how I've been treating my roommates. Jesus, you haven't seen how I think about the people that I walk by on campus. Jesus, I have not loved my neighbor and you are crushed by this weight. Well, what we must do is we must look to Jesus. We must look back to God. The why of this question and the what do we do with our radical failures are met in him. In God, you have a being who stands outside of creation. I want you for a second to picture the edges of our known universe that are right now expanding at a speed more rapid than light. If you know science, you can correct me on that, but I think it's something like that. The universe is expanding and you can't even wrap your mind around that. If the Christian God is who we believe him to be, he stands outside of all of that. He holds all of that together. He created that. He is the ground for existence and time and matter and everything. And yet we are told that he loves us. Why? In 1 John, we're told that God is love. You see, God has forever and ever existed in this perfect loving relationship within himself. That's a weird thing to say. But we can say that because Christians believe in this thing called the Trinity. And what that means is that, yes, God is one, but that one God is made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And those three persons have forever and always, throughout all of time, even beyond time, they have forever loved one another perfectly. The Father has always and forever perfectly loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son has always and forever perfectly loved the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit has always and forever perfectly loved the Son and the Father. And so what you have is this beautiful, ridiculous dance of love that is happening at the heart of God forever and always. That is who he is. And so John can say, God is love. He does not say God is loving. He does not say that God likes to love. He says that God is love. And that's why God created you. Because he, in this just ridiculous dance of perfect love in himself, he said, I want something else to pour this love out on. And so he created the world. He created the universe. He created you. But what did we do? We rejected his love. We said, I'd rather love myself and I'd rather give myself to loving the things that I want to do. And we've done that to the expense of our neighbor. We rebelled against him. We rejected him and we turn and we hate our neighbor. But still his love for you remains. 1 John 4, 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation, a payment, a satisfaction for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Do you get what that is saying? Saying that Jesus Christ is God's love language for you. It's saying that a being who stands outside of space and time, you're not going to be able to like understand his communication. 
He's got to put that into word. He's got to put that into a word. He's got to put that into the word. And his word is Jesus Christ to you. God's love is most clearly expressed in Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God limits himself by taking on human flesh. He lives and experiences life as you know it. And yet he perfectly loved God. And he perfectly loved his neighbor. And so anybody who believes in that gets to receive that to their credit. And Jesus, in turn, receives all of your hatred for God and all of your hatred for neighbor. Jesus on the cross then becomes the perfect union of love for God and love for neighbor. Why must Jesus bleed? Because he loves God. His love for God's holiness and his love for God's justice means that sin and our rebellion can't go unpunished. And so Jesus goes to the cross. But why does he stay there? Because he loves you. Legitimately, Jesus Christ had your name on his lips as he suffered and died, and he stayed on that cross because he loved you. And the reason he does all of this is so so that you would be restored to a loving relationship with your God, with your creator, to restore that thing that broke at the foundation of the world. And when you see his love for you, and I mean like really see it, like when it starts to grip your gut, Like in the same way that you look at somebody that you love and sometimes you are just moved with this, "Mm, I love that person, I want them. Right now it's my two boys in my mind and it's them playing on a bounce house that we got them for Christmas. Yes, we got our kids a bounce house, which is an act of lunacy. But I'm picturing them on that and my heart is just, oh, I love them. When that begins to sink in, when his love for you begins to sink in, you can't help but be moved by it. And when it moves it, when it moves your heart, you have to ask the question, how do I love my God in return? And he says, go love your neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments are all about. And University of Tennessee student, there is no limit to who your neighbor is. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus expresses this. People say, hey, listen, Jesus, who's my neighbor? And he tells them a parable about a Good Samaritan, somebody who crossed every social line. Somebody who sacrificially loved someone that should have been their enemy. And Jesus says, even that person, you are called to love because that's what I did for you. You are my enemy. I loved you. I came for you. You are now to do the same. So student, volunteer. That means that I don't care who it is that you sit next to. I don't care how different they are from you politically, socioeconomically, values, whatever. Jesus says, they are your neighbor. Wherever you sit in your classrooms, wherever you stand in your Zumba class or pedaling class or whatever you do, whoever is next to you is your neighbor. In your dorms, the people who are crazy and coming back at all hours of the night and driving you nuts, that is your neighbor. And Jesus has called you to love them because he wants you to express your love for him. That's where we're going this semester. I want you to see that these are not restrictive words. This is a pathway to train you in love for God in receiving and bending that love out towards others. And as you do this, you return to what you were created for and good things run wild. Let's pray. RUF is a community of students that is trying to learn how to love God, love people, and love the University of Tennessee. The way that we do that is to create safe places for students of all types and backgrounds to process the story of Jesus and to learn how to integrate their lives into his story. For more information, follow us on Instagram 
at utk underscore ruf or visit our website at www.ruf.org slash utk.